We um, return today to a series in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 9 is actually where you can be turning if you have a Bible. We we really took a five-week break. Uh, many of you have been privy to that if you've been watching online. But the first of those five weeks was the last time we were here together physically as a church. Uh, we were looking at meditations on the cross. We returned to, to 1 Samuel, though, after a, a monumental, if not one of the most important chapters in the book, if not the Bible in my mind, that Israel is formally, officially telling Samuel, hey, we're done with judges. <laughs> we want a king. God takes this as a personal offense. Even though there is provision in the law, namely Deuteronomy chapter 17, for a monarchy or a king in Israel. But the way that it has come about is in reality not the way that God wanted it, not the way that Israel's elders should have approached it. They want a king like all the other nations. This is in direct contrast to their king, God, who is considered to be their king. And he wants his nation to be unlike all the other nations, to be holy, to be set apart, to be a peculiar nation. Israel doesn't want that, or so the elders have spoken. And I said that what was amazing was these two truths that we might think at first to be impossibly held together. (laughs) That is, God is extremely upset, it seems, at the proposal. They've not rejected me, or they've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. But then secondly, God uh, concedes. (laughs) So some put forward this idea that God always gets what He wants, even if sin happens. It's not that He really wants the sin to happen. Nevertheless, He's getting what He wants. Well, I believe God can and does redeem all and use all sins. It's why He's so amazing. But simply because He uses and redeems sin, uh, that's His craft. He's excellent at it. It doesn't mean that He wants sin or He ordains or brings about sin for those purposes. I believe in a perfect world, there would be no sin ever. That's what God truly wants, is a world where sin never takes place. In His concession to His people, we're going to find that He gives sinners a chance. Just like a dad who says to his kids, hey, don't run fast down that hill or you'll start tumbling, you'll hurt yourself. Sometimes what's needed after telling your son that 14 times is then to let him have his way, and maybe an experience might speak louder to him than your voice. That's kind of what's happening on a much bigger scale here in Israel. So we'll be covering all of 1 Samuel chapter 9 today, but I'm going to ask you to stand this morning as we read the first nine verses together to just get an introduction of the events. 1 Samuel chapter 9, excuse me, the first ten verses I believe is what we'll be reading actually. We read, uh, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. 
And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashah, but they did not find them. As they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with them, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Let's pray. Father, we are um, looking at a passage that to us seems like mundane, everyday events. Uh, Many of us have been there traveling, maybe looking for something, talking about things. But Father, your, your word is peeling back the ordinary and the mundane to reveal the divine and the spiritual. Um, Father, your hand is over these events. And as such, we pray that as we read and study your word together, that we don't think we're sitting in something ordinary, but we know that we're in the presence of you speaking to us. Holy Spirit, have your way in our hearts. May you use this to glorify you and to love and help us to love and serve others. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus, who died for our sins and is risen again. And it's in his name we pray and it's his, and that we ask his spirit to speak. Amen. You may be seated. Think about this with me. In 1 Samuel... We have this monumental chapter. The elders come forward and say to Samuel, give us a king. And we hear God and Samuel talking. We're talking about the future of an entire nation here. (laughs) Huge events. And after God concedes, Samuel says, okay, go home, elders. (laughs) We get this idea that thus begins the process. And then the proverbial bird's eye view, the camera zooms out and next we see a brand new character in the story. Okay, who is he? We don't really know him. He's kind of good looking, the text tells us. (laughs) He's a man of wealth, the ESV says. And in other translations, we might see a man of power. In fact, it's the same words in the original language used to describe Boaz in the book of Ruth. Saul was a man in power, maybe a man with influence, a man possibly who maybe was a manager or an overseer, over-servants. He's good-looking. And the idea is given to us right away is that he is desirable. We know rather quickly, reading into this chapter, this is going to be the king. It's why the author has zoomed in on an obscure new character we never heard of before, looking for donkeys. He's desirable in the world's terms. He's fine-looking. He's powerful in his own sphere of influence. But then we're told he's tall. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And then, in fact, 
One chapter over in 1 Samuel 10.23 at Saul's public coronation, we're going to see that same phrase. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. Why do you bring this up, Kevin? Good question. The only other places in the Bible that uses this terminology to talk about height, namely being taller than everyone else. Now, this might be a a stretch, but it's interesting. It refers to potential enemies of Israel. In 1 Samuel 7, 17, verses 4 and 5, it's used to describe Goliath. In Numbers 13, 28, from the spies talking about the inhabitants of the promised land, that they are large, they're threatening, we can't overtake them. So what I'm saying is not that the Bible hates tall people, which I'm glad since I am one. However, it could be, biblically speaking, a literary foreshadow that when the authors find it necessary to make mention of their height, it could be to cast a foreboding shade on such characters. We know that Saul will turn out to be more harmful than helpful as the king in Israel. So this tall, handsome Somewhat powerful guy is looking for his dad's sheep. He's out with his servant. We're told that uh, they went to this place, couldn't find them. They went to that place, couldn't find them. They came to the land of Zuf, which is apparently another regional name, describing the area in which Ramah, where Samuel lives. That's Samuel's hometown. Now, this is going to be hard. I'm just going to say this right here. I feel like I'm going to confuse the names of Samuel and Saul from time to time, so bear with me. Hopefully, you'll get what I'm saying whenever I say things in context. But Saul and his servant arrives, and we're let on to another subtle hint that Saul is showing some flaws, maybe some red flags, some questions here. Saul is ready to go home thinking, hey, dad will be more worried about us than the donkeys if we don't show up. But then Saul's servant informs him, hey, Samuel lives here. Now, we don't know if Saul was completely unaware of Samuel, or maybe Saul knew about Samuel and knew that he lived in Ramah and was probably maybe in the back of his mind, why would Samuel care about my donkeys that I'm trying to find? First Samuel 3.20 tells us, And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. If Saul didn't know about Samuel, it's easily understood also because he's living in the time of the judges where Saul's just living his life, maybe oblivious and careless to God's word in his life. We're told when Samuel hears from God at the beginning of our book here in 1 Samuel, that Israel was now on speaking terms with God's people again. He hadn't been up to that point. But then again, Saul didn't live in the kind of world we lived in where China starts suffering from a virus, we hear about it, and then we get it. (laughs) We're immediately informed as soon as it happens. Elders had met with Samuel to bring about a king. It could be that the people in village miles away from Ramah and away from the discussion that the elders had with Samuel didn't know and may not have even cared about changes in their nation. Saul's concerned about donkeys right now. So we don't know. Was Saul clueless as to the very existence of Samuel? We don't know. Saul then says, well, okay, if we go to the prophet, whether he knew about uh, Samuel or not, we got to bring him a present, right? <laughs> um, we see this primarily throughout the books of First and Second Kings. In a few places... 
where it is customary to bring a gift to the prophet. So years on down the road, after Saul, after Samuel, after the kingdoms are split, uh, we see that um, people bring gifts to the prophets as customary. But even in those places, in First and Second Kings, two times the payment to the prophet is refused, and in one time the payment is dispersed for the good of the people. Furthermore, one historian and commentator, a Jewish historian named Josephus, writes a little bit after the time of Jesus, he, saw, he sees Saul's comments here as more ignorance. That, hey, that's not what you're supposed to do. Because in Micah, we just went through Micah as a church, we read about Micah criticizing prophets who prophesy uh, depending on what they have or what they get. So it could be again that Saul is just showing his ignorance of prophets. Well, if I want my donkeys found and if he's going to help me, I better pay him. Just not knowing how the God of Israel works. Even so, the servant says he has some silver. So maybe that will help. So we will now continue. Saul thinks it's a good idea. We pick it up in verse 11. As they went up the hill to the city, they met a young woman coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. And if you read the Bible, at least whenever I read it, in most instances, this idea of high place seems to always not be acceptable. Usually bad religion is going on on these high places. However, First Kings 3.2 tells us, it seems to suggest that this was an acceptable practice before the temple. That, hey, there is no temple to worship God. Plus, the majority of things we know about Samuel in the book is that he's a pretty righteous judge. So it's likely that he's not bringing bad religion. He's still giving acceptable worship to Yahweh. In any case, the young woman continued to say to Saul and his servant, As soon as you enter the city, you will find him. Before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Now, this is where I find it very interesting. You know Saul's story, if you know it. Where does he mess up? (laughs) Namely, in his kingdom, he gets a little bit antsy and he makes an unacceptable sacrifice to God while he's waiting for Samuel to show up sometime. So this is even more foreshadowing, I believe, for Saul. Here he is, even before he knows he's going to be king, and he's getting educated on how sacrifices to God work. (laughs) We continue on in the middle of verse 13. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before... Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So so think about this with me. Despite all the small, minor, possible red flags that have been showing up, Every other time a person is revealed as taller than everyone else, he's a bad guy in Scripture. Saul seems to be a man of power and desirable in the worldly sense for a king. Maybe just not desirable in the godly sense. Saul 
uh, seems a little bit lacking in information concerning Samuel and concerning prophets. He's getting schooled in sacrifices, something that will cost him the kingdom in the future. Possible, uh, despite all these possible foreshadows from the author, we now see something else. We see that Samuel is expecting Saul. We see that God actually met with Samuel about Saul. Hey, Saul's coming. And verse 16 again, quote, And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So just so we hear this, just so we're all on the same page, God told Samuel to anoint Saul as king. Well, actually, as prince, the the word here for prince could just mean commander or leader. And it's a term that um, that would be used for king is intentionally avoided here because Israel has a king. (laughs) His name is Yahweh. Yahweh, in some ways, is again conceding and making room for two. Saul would still be answerable to Yahweh, so much so that he that he doesn't do things the way Yahweh establishes, and that's what cost him his kingdom. But God is saying, here's the plan, Saul. (laughs) Saul is the plan. Studying for this entire series, or writing out studies for my study guides, here's what's get, what gets me. In fact, it's what's always got me, because First and Second Samuel are by far, I think, my favorite books of the Bible. And here's what's always confused me. Saul. <laughs> King Saul has always confused me. Because it seems evident to me that, that King David is God's king in more ways than Saul would ever be. David is God's choice. In fact, listen to the stronger language in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. This is what God says. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Notice that God says He has provided for Himself a king. to me, that seems a little bit more personable, right? In fact, it seems that David is God's choice. It could be that Saul is the people's choice. (laughs) That's the point. Even so, hear this too. God uses Saul. God uses Saul. And He uses Saul for good things. (laughs) God doesn't even use Saul in a sense like this. Well, I'll make do. (laughs) But... More like this. You want Saul, Israel? Here, I guess what? I have a job for him. I think this idea of being prince or commander or leader, though in Israel's eyes he's king, it seems evident to me that that God is raising up Saul for a particular task. That's what God says here at the end of verse 16. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their eye... Their cry has come to me. I don't know if you remember, we talked about this briefly uh, six weeks ago. The elders of Israel approached Samuel wanting a king instead of wanting Samuel and Yahweh to, to lead them. But one motivation of their fear was the threat of war again. In fact, when uh, Samuel, that's what Samuel will say in 1 Samuel 12 in his farewell address whenever he's coming out of public service as it were. 
He says, when king so-and-so came against you, then you came to me wanting a king. That's 1 Samuel 12, 12. And so a lot of things are, are happening here simultaneously. First of all, God is conceding from what his desires are for Israel. God is answering Israel in their distress. That's the language for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. That's the exact same language that God uses when he talks to Moses and he tells Moses to deliver the Israelites. Thirdly, God is giving Israel the kind of king that they want. Hosea 13.11 again recounts this very appointment of Saul to Israel. And God says through Hosea, I gave you a king in my anger. (laughs) A lot of things happening here. How can all of this happen all at once? How can God concede to Israel, but also want to save Israel from the Philistines, but still appoint a guy like Saul, who will turn out to be like who he is? It's Israel's choice, and it's God's choice, but I think of it this way. Illustration for you, Calvin was going upstairs to his room the other day, and uh, he shrieks in horror. (laughs) What is it? What's wrong? And he told me that there was a dead fly on the carpet. Christy was busy with dishes and I was busy feeding Landon, but Calvin wants that fly removed because even though it's dead, it's a, it's a great imminent threat. Eventually, Christy or I, I don't remember, we, we came up and we removed the dead fly. It wasn't because maybe we agreed with Calvin that it was super dangerous, but it was because, uh, out of our love for Calvin and make sure he feels secure, even though it may have not been our first choice. The one of a king and the one of a king like Saul is not God's choice for his people. Even though his people had the audacity to approach Samuel in the first place for a king, does not mean that A, Israel was 100% aware of what they were asking for. I don't know if, if they even suspected of how they were coming across to God as outright rejection. They, they just wanted their cake and they wanted to eat it too. And so God is proverbially removing the fly for them. He's going to show them love, even though it's not his choice. He's going to use their choice for his choice to save them from a coming threat. Does that make sense? In fact, verse 17, we read, When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He, he it is who shall restrain my people. Now, this is an interesting translation choice of the ESV, restrain. Um, more translations would put in rule or govern. But the word, according to Strong's, means restrain. <laughs> and words like restrain uh, throughout the Bible is the same uh, Hebrew word used here. It could be confine, restrict, stop, stay, shut, slow down. All these are used for this word throughout the Bible, but it is used only here, it seems, if my study is correct, where other people would use rule as to what kind of person that Saul would be. But this may also be more negative foreshadowing. Because here's one way it could mean, maybe Saul is going to restrain God's people from breaking apart, as that happens a lot in the time of the judges. In fact, he might bring order into a ragtag group of tribes. Or it could also mean he's restraining them from moving forward into being the kind of people that God wants them to be. Verse 18, Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, 
where is the house of the seer? So here we are again. We know Samuel has been given God's voice to say, hey, Saul's coming. You can expect him. But again, Saul doesn't seem to know Samuel. Now, it could be that Saul knew of Samuel. He just never met him face to face. But it seems to me, wouldn't Samuel might be wearing some sort of distinctive garb? I don't know. It could be the author is continuing to show us subtle clues. This guy Saul is a bit distant from Samuel and a bit distant from what he should know about God. Verse 19. Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place. So Samuel's being polite here. He's the priest, but he's saying, go make yourself comfortable uh, for the mill. You're my guest of honor. For today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your fathers and all for your father's house? So we have the people's plans. We have Saul's plans, just looking for donkeys, and God's plans all converging here. The people's plans were for a king like Saul. Saul here is just, again, looking for some donkeys, and he thought, and he thought talking to Samuel, the prophet or the seer, might be of help, which he was. He did inform Saul, hey, they've been found. But then we have God's plans here, giving a kingship to Saul. And then, verse 20, because of Israel's desires, right? Doesn't Israel desire you and your family above all, right? First Samuel 8, we learn that that was the case. They don't want God's kingship. They want a king like Saul. I think we can take a hint here, folks. I wonder if you just heard that. God is giving Israel the kind of king that Israel wants. It should cause us to be a little afraid that it's not the king that God wants. (laughs) What kind of king, what kind of president in election season, what kind of leaders do you want And are you quick to assume that they're the same kind of leaders that God wants? Have you prayed through these matters? See, Saul's tall, handsome, powerful. He's about to show a little humility, maybe, here. David is going to be the runt of the litter. He's going to be thought little of by Jesse. And he's going to bring slingshots to a battlefield to face a giant with swords. He's going to be the kind of king that God chooses. What are the people's plans? What are Saul's plans? And what are God's plans? But here is that humility that Saul shows in verse 21. Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? I don't think Saul is saying these things out of faked modesty in thin air. Uh, Rather, the nation of Israel had had a civil war, and it originated in Gibeah, that's Saul's hometown, in the place or the tribe of Benjamin. This horrific uh, story is at the end of Judges, Judges chapter 19 through 21, if you want to read it later on. It opens kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah at the start, with a bunch of worthless men surrounding the house of a person in Gibeah. The worthless men demand from the master of the house to let go of a visiting Levite so they can have their way with him. The Levite, who really isn't righteous, happens to have a concubine, and he happens to just, here, take her instead. Take the concubine. Well, she dies at the hands of these worthless men. 
So enraged, the Levite decides to literally split up his dead concubine into 12 parts and deliver them all over to Israel, to each tribe. And he's basically saying, this happened in Benjamin. Can you believe this happens in Benjamin? We need to punish Benjamin for allowing this sort of thing to happen. And basically, civil war happens. Again, Judges 19 through 21, but... But Benjamin and Israel could have maybe become a little bit like South Carolina or Virginia or some of the southern states in the USA for a while. Troublemakers, do we really trust these guys? So Saul is saying, why are you going where you're going, Samuel, with your conversation? I'm from the land of rebels. I'm from the troublemakers. We're the small guys. We lost a lot of people in the war. In fact, in a strange turn of events, we're told in Judges 21 that the tribes of Israel felt sorry for Benjamin, so they took their wives and married them because a lot of wives' men had died in that war. But Saul could be saying in some ways, we're not trusted in the land. I mean, maybe maybe not that far, or it may have not been that far or that long since that civil war, we don't know, but even so, I don't think Saul is just trying to sound humble. He's probably speaking from serious reservations, from serious history. Even so, the people's plans had been put into God's plans. They're going to become Saul's plans. After Saul's slight questioning of Samuel, we read that events are moving forward. In fact, Some wonder or consider what is about to happen here uh, on the high place might be a pre-coronation sacrifice and banquet. It's so amazing to me still that Saul came looking for donkeys, (laughs) but he's going to leave before the day is out, expecting basically to be king over Israel. You never know what happens when you go to the market. Verse 22, Then Samuel took Saul and his young men and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. Interestingly enough, in Second Samuel, will be let in on 30 mighty men who surround and protect King David. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept and kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So according to Exodus 29:27, Samuel is giving Saul the priest's portion of the sacrifice. That's a, in other words, there's a sacredness to the kingship. Again, the people's plans, but also God's plans. So Saul ate with Samuel that day and they came down from the high place into the city. A bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then, at the break of dawn, Samuel came to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God, and then we'll pick up next week on what that word of God is, basically the anointing of Saul as king over Israel. But for right now, as I have been alluding to throughout our study together, don't you find this interesting? I mean, it's a it's a big deal. This is the future of God's people, God's nation here in this day, Israel. 
And I'm still getting over the fact, 1 Samuel 8, 7, where God says to Samuel to begin with, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So again, God sees here that the people are wanting their way. The people are rejecting God, thereby rejecting His plan, so much so, again, 1 Samuel 8.22, where God concedes, obey their voice, and make them a king. See, this is God in a much, much more bigger, more significant way, letting their child place their hand on the burner, right? A little experience will show them. What's more, though, is not only is God letting Israel have their way, but we have seen in this chapter that God's basically said, I choose Saul for this time. Because it is Israel's desire, and it's not that God's going to just play along, but there's going to be some strong language in chapter 10. See, Saul's going to be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord is going to enter into Saul. Saul's heart is going to be changed by God. And all this, though we see the red flags, we see this truth. That you and I have a king in God who gives sinners a chance. That's a scary thing. That's a fair thing. (laughs) When the kingdom is taken away from Saul, it's going to be Saul's fault. Even though David is God's choice for a king. We see here in God's moving Samuel to anoint Saul... And God's going along with Israel a few things. We first of all see that God isn't a marionette and we are puppets. God was rejected here and God's saying, okay, let's see how things play out. Here's the kind of king you want. And we know how it ends and we know it hurts. It hurts like watching your child reach out to touch the burner. But let's not forget that simply because God lets sinners have their chance does not mean that God relinquishes his love. He's going to use Saul to defend Israel from the Philistines. He's going to bring David after Saul fails. He's going to bring the greater King David from this very establishment, this very concession that God here makes. And it makes me wonder, friend, is God just giving you a chance right now? See, you and I know how the book of Samuel continues. And sure, it's exciting. Here's a a new time for Israel King Saul, a new government, woohoo. But I wonder if maybe in less than stated terms, maybe in a little bit less clearer terms, nevertheless, I wonder if you and God have been having a little argument. Maybe there's a few things in your life where you've said to God, I'm sorry, but I would like to, I would like, I want to be like the world here, God. And God conceded and King Saul's getting coronated. And like King Saul, red flags are going up and you're ignoring them. Maybe others aren't ignoring them. Maybe maybe they've pointed it out, but really all that's happening is another King Saul's in the shoot for your life. The King Saul who ultimately turns out to be what he turns out to be. It's a scary thing that we have a God, yes, who by faith we do persist in Him, and by faith we can be kept in Him, but God who gives sinners a chance to do what they want to do because He wants a true, voluntarily love given from you. I encourage you that instead of using the liberty that God is giving you, you, instead of using that leash, don't pull what the elders of Israel have pulled anymore. (laughs) Don't say to God, I want it my way. 
Because you know our God's the kind of God who says okay. <laughs> because God has a better plan in mind than your plan. We serve a God who King who gives sinners a chance. What chance is He giving you right now? Don't let this time slip through your hands. Don't instead use this opportunity to relinquish, to surrender and say, Lord, I want to do Your will, not my will. I want to surrender my kingdom for Yours. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to this interesting time in the book of First Samuel that things are moving forward. Big changes are happening. And what's scariest of it all is that it's not your will. It wasn't your decision to make these changes. Nevertheless, when people make sinful desires into sinful actions, things start moving the wrong direction. Father, a kingdom's going to come that it's not your will. Even so, you're going to use the sinful actions to still mold and make Israel and mold and make Jesus to come from this very institution. Father, it is refreshing to know that you can use our sins and our problems for the greater good, for good for us even, if we would someday repent and turn from our actions. But it's also scary to know that you give us a leash, and whenever we want to make bad choices, you say, go ahead. Father, I pray that if any of us have made those bad choices, that the Holy Spirit would be convicting right now and saying, this is somewhere where you have said, I want to be like the world and not like King Jesus. Would you convict us, and would that conviction turn into action on our part to repent? Would you help us to desire your will above our will and your ways above our ways? Because what you have planned is a lot better than what we think we have planned. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for King Jesus, the Redeemer, who redeems us from our sins and our evil choices. Would you help us to live this out in our daily walk today and for the week to come? We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.